think that one thing that we're all going to have to look at going forward is what are we going to do to get cases tried? As you all know, people need their day in court. And how in the world are we going to do that? I mean, that's one of the things that, that keeps me worried and a lot of people on the bench and, and lawyers as well is how are we going to do this? Because there's an enormous backlog of cases, you know, but what are trials going to look like? Are they going to be more bench trials? Are we going to go with six person jury trials instead of 12 person jury trials? Because we're not going to come back into jury trials like it was before. Hello and welcome to See You in Court the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law. Welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with us here today, as usual, is my co-host, Lester Tate. How you doing, Robin? I'm doing fine. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Uh, Still still enjoying this podcast uh, born of uh, uh, coronavirus lockdown here. Absolutely. And um, today we're taping this on a Friday, and tomorrow your, your jackets play... The dreaded Clemson. That's right. They they play Clemson, uh, who's quarterbacked by by a young man from Cartersville, Georgia. It was a Purple Hurricane. I watched him here in Cartersville play uh, during high school, and uh, has really just gotten better and better and better. So I'm not uh, I am not hopeful of a jacket win, but uh, I am thinking that if the Atlanta Braves win tonight and go on to the World Series, that uh, there will be at least one bright spot to the year 2020. I agree. Um, Well, today we're going to be talking about state court and and state court in Georgia and specifically or more specifically Fulton County State Court, uh, the largest county in our state. And uh, it's a pretty large court. We're going to talk about that. Um, We're going to talk about the state court's jurisdiction and some issues that state court of Fulton County uh, is facing these days during the pandemic. And to help us understand these issues, we are thrilled to have with us the Honorable Susan Edline, Judge of the Fulton County State Court, here with us today. And she is um, going to be the next Chief Judge, uh, in line to be next Chief Judge of Fulton County State Court. Judge Edline, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, It's an honor to be on here and, and join you for your podcast. We're we're very lucky to have you uh, join us, and uh, we know you're staying busy in Fulton County State Court. So, thanks for taking out time to be be with us today. Let let me take a minute and just tell our listeners a little bit about Judge Edline, because um, I mean I've known her for a long time, and I knew she was impressive. But man, when I read her bio, it's it's amazing. So I want our listeners to appreciate all that she's done. Um, Judge Edline, as I said, has, uh, she's a Fulton County State Court judge and has been on Fulton County State Court since 2008. In 2013, the Georgia Association for Women Lawyers awarded Judge Edline its highest honor, the Kathleen Kessler Award, which is given to a female attorney who exhibits the highest degree of professionalism and dedication to service in the legal community. 
again in 2017, Gall, Georgia Association of Women Lawyers, awarded Judge Edline with the Honorable Deborah Burns Community Volunteer Award in recognition of exceptional service to the greater community. The Atlanta Bar Association honored Judge Edline as the recipient of its Professionalism Award in 2012. Before taking the bench, Judge Edline was a litigation partner in Holland and Knight's Atlanta office, where she was co-chair of the National Real Estate Litigation Team and the Atlanta coordinator for the Women's Initiative Program, which is part of the firm's commitment to diversity. Judge Edline is a member of the Board of Governors for the State Bar of Georgia and is the immediate past president of the Emory Inn of Court. She is vice president of the Lawyers Club of Atlanta and Judge Edline served as chair of the Judiciary Section of the State Bar of Georgia during 2011-2012, and serves as the Council of State Court Judges representative on the Chief Justice's Commission on Professionalism, where she chairs the Grants Committee. She's also a prior chair of the Atlanta Bar Judicial Section and is a current board member of the Litigation Section of the Atlanta Bar. Judge Edline grew up here in Atlanta and attended Henderson High School in DeKalb County. She participated in the honors program at UNC Chapel Hill and graduated with a BA in political science. Judge Edline then attended law school at University of Virginia, where she was a semifinalist in the William Minor Lyle Moot Court Competition and articles editor of the Journal of Law and Politics. Judge Edline has been married to her husband, Scott, for 28 years and is the proud mother of three teenagers. She is an active volunteer in the community and with her children's schools, as well as the temple, where she previously served on the religious school committee and as chair of its Benai Mitzvah subcommittee. Welcome, Judge Enline. Very Thank impressive, you. very impressive resume, but I'm not surprised <laughs> at all. Um, but again, thank you. And, for and I, I'm, I'm going to add, she's a really good dancer too. Because I had, <laughs> I, I had the, I had the privilege of of dancing with her at a state bar function, and uh, and, and even being the klutz that I am, I couldn't step on her feet. She was, she was so, 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 uh, so uh, uh, able to move around the dance floor. I will tell you, Lester, that my husband was very happy that someone else was willing to dance with me because. Uh, <laughs> I love to dance and he does not so much. So thank you for, uh, from Scott for that, that one. Does that come from your time as being a Tar Heel? They all shag in North Carolina. <laughs> I was never quite so good at that one, but uh, I will just say it continued on in uh, undergrad and I don't think it stopped. And, and for those listeners uh, who may be in the uh, British Isles, let's emphasize that shag is a Southern dance. <laughs> Uh, as, as opposed to some other meanings uh, else, elsewhere that might, uh, that word might be used for. As soon as I said that, Lester, I realized I probably shouldn't have used that word, but we know it as a dance in America. Exactly. You're right. And you can hold your beer with one hand while you, while, while you do it, if you're really good at it. So, um, Judge Edline, let's, let's first, before we get into some, some uh, substantive questions about your court, I wanted to ask you just a couple of uh, questions about your career um, and pretty large question. Why did you want to be a lawyer? You know, I asked myself, somebody asked me that question a while ago and I was like, it was just one of those things I always grew up wanting to be a lawyer and I'm never quite sure where it came from. I'm the only lawyer in my family. 
Um, so I didn't grow up with parents or grandparents or anybody else. And matter of fact, I didn't know very many lawyers, but apparently this happened when I was five or six. And my dad said to me, you know, Susie, if you like to argue so much, why don't you just become a lawyer? And I guess it just stuck in my head because my whole life, I just knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and it never changed. Yeah. You stuck with it. That's great. So, um, you know, right now we've got, uh, we've got a confirmation hearing going on, you know, uh, for a U.S. Supreme Court justice where they talk about people's backgrounds and, and we've got judicial, had judicial elections. Mm -hmm. I guess they're all over where, you know, candidates are talking about that. And you've had, I, I think, a very distinguished career at the bar before going on the bench. And I'm curious if you had to pinpoint one uh, activity or experience or, or, something that happened to you as a lawyer that you feel really best qualified you and helped you, uh, uh, that you rely on as a judge, what, what would that be? Being mom to three kids. <laughs> <That's a great laughs> I, say that, I say that partly in jest, but partly, um, you know, just sometimes lawyers or parties get to squabbling and you're like, let's just get down to the issues here. Right. And let's, let's just focus on what the issues are. But you know, it, it's interesting. I loved being a lawyer. Um, and I actually had someone once ask me, what's your dream job? Um, <laughs> at the time she asked me, my kids were, I just made partner. My kids were two, four and six. You know, I was happy to show up at work with the same color shoes on. Right. You know, and, um, and I was like, wow, my dream job. I was like, I would sure love to be a judge someday. I think that would be like the best job in the world. And she said, well, what are you doing to get there? And again, I was like, absolutely nothing. Like this is, this is the first time I think I've ever vocalized that, um, that desire. And I, for me, I think being a judge is a good fit. Um, because I have always been, um, solution driven. Um, and so for me, uh, what I really enjoyed in the practice of law was really counseling my clients to try to find a goal. It wasn't litigation. Um, I dealt with litigation, but it, some people thrive on the getting in the courtroom and being um, a zealous advocate and winning. Um, and, you know, my approach is if we get to court and we have to go through all that time and expense, even if you win, it may not be a win because it's going to take you years and it's going to cost you a lot of money um, in many times, many times. So I was always one for trying to, um, to reach a solution. Um, and so I think that's one thing that as a judge, uh, you know, I'm absolutely not an advocate anymore. I can't do that, but I, I do think it helps more um, giving parties an, an area where they can reach a resolution, whether it's through trial or otherwise. I think it helps for a trial judge like you to have been in the shoes of a counselor representing real life people too. Yeah. I mean, it, because one thing that I, and I've said this, I've been on the bench, gosh, now I think as much time as I was a lawyer practicing law. Wow. That's the first time I thought of it that way, but um, we're close to it. it. And I always said, I hope I don't forget what it's like to be a lawyer to understand the demands put on you by trial calendars, by your clients trying to juggle so many things and understanding, um, you know, 
what it's like to try to schedule depositions, get cases ready for trial when you've got multiple cases and multiple clients. And, you know, that's something that I try to keep in mind when I'm, you know, working with lawyers and in the many cases that we have here. You, you left a, what I would call a very prominent law firm in Atlanta, Holland and Knight, obviously a, a, also a very large firm. You left a very large prominent law firm to become a judge. You've told us that was because you thought judge was, would be your dream job. Um, now you're on the other side. You've been on the bench 12 years. Were you right? Is it your dream job? <laughs> yeah, it still is. Every day I'm really thankful to be here and doing what I do. Um, and I think that when I stop feeling that way, it's time for me to stop being a judge. Um, because I, I, I really enjoy uh, doing this. And um, I don't know, we're going to talk about it later, but I think particularly being in state court, um, you know, this may be somebody's only opportunity they're in the courtroom, whether they're there because they got a traffic ticket or they're there as a party or they're there as a, as a juror and, you know, letting them see what the, what our justice system really looks like. I mean, I think that's really important. It's something I enjoy doing. Very much struck me that, uh, that you said you really loved being a lawyer and, um, you know, Robin and I, I know both have a lot of friends who decided to go on the bench instead of remain at the bar. And uh, so many of them say, oh yeah, I wanted to go on the bench because I just hated being a lawyer. You know, I, I, you know, I didn't like it. And, uh, and, and I think that, that really, uh, to me, seems like it gives you uh, a very good outlook on, on what you're doing there. I will say that I loved being a lawyer, but I hated billable hours. So it's really nice not to have those anymore. Yeah. That's why one of the reasons I do what I do, I haven't yeah. built an hour in over 20 something years. I don't know how long it's been, but a long time. Uh, Judge Edlin, let's talk a little bit. You, you kind of got into this topic about uh, Fulton, about state court and you, specifically your court, Fulton County State Court. Um, our, our listeners are, are both lawyers, but also just public. And the mission of this podcast is to educate the public about the Georgia civil justice uh, system. And I have heard many people, and I think it's right, talk about that state court is the place where most citizens of Georgia may have their only contact with court. Can you tell us a little bit about what the jurisdiction is of your court and if that's a true statement and why? Um, I, we definitely have a lot of people coming into state court. And, and here's one reason why I think, because state court handles misdemeanor cases. Um, so for those, our listeners who are out there, um, so that's anything up to 12 months in jail and up to a thousand dollar fine. Uh, we also handle in Fulton County, we have a lot of traffic tickets um, that people may have. Uh, so if you're thinking about the misdemeanor cases that we try, um, it could be everything from criminal trespass to, you know, the more serious cases, the, the DUI cases and domestic violence ones as well. Um, and also these may be a lot of the types of cases that people might be a part of. For example, we have a lot of folks who may be involved in car accidents. We see a lot of those kinds of cases. Um, sometimes there's a lot of uh, collection matters that might be filed in state court. Um, you know, we don't, what kinds of cases do we have? We can handle all sorts of civil cases. Like I mentioned, anything from a 
collection case to a business dispute, medical malpractice case. Um, we don't do domestic, uh, so divorces, child custody, um, and anything when somebody needs like equitable relief. So think um, if you people like to think maybe trade secrets, so you're trying to stop somebody from stealing your trade secret, something like that. Those, that equitable relief is in superior court. And, and the felony, the serious criminal cases are also superior court. But we handle the rest of those. Um, and, you know, a lot of, I think in Fulton, uh, you know, we have a, a large civil practice um, in state court, in part because we don't have the same heavy criminal load and, uh, and uh, domestic caseload that they do in superior court. I would, I'd, I'd just note sort of for our listeners too, that, uh, you know, not every county in Georgia has a state court. For example, Bartow County, where my principal office is, doesn't have a state court. Polk County doesn't have a state court. Paulding County doesn't have a state court. And there's no real rhyme or reason to it as far as, uh, you know, Metro Atlanta has state courts and uh, smaller areas don't because there's some very small counties that have state courts and have some of them even have part time part time mm -hmm. judges, don't they? Yes, they do. Um, well, yeah, it, pardon me. Go ahead. I, Lord, well, I, I was going to say Fulton is one of the, I, I guess, one of, if not the biggest state court in the state of Georgia. I think so. We've got um, in Fulton County we have 10 state court judges. Uh, full-time state court judges yeah. and we've also got 20 superior court judges uh here in fulton so i think we have the most sort of full-time trial court judges of any county in the state and you know, and you again again you don't you, you never have to hear a divorce and you never send anybody to the penitentiary uh, <laughs> because you don't have felony jurisdiction and you don't have domestic uh domestic domestic jurisdiction yeah we don't have the um the ones over the domestic cases that's right um, I, you know, I, I file a lot of lawsuits, uh, and almost always in a lot in Fulton County, but almost always in state court is my preference. I have come, you know, my practice is just a general personal injury practice of all types of cases, but I, I have found that state court judges tend to be more of an expert on the types of cases I have. Uh, I, I ventured out into Superior Court once and I regretted it, and I'll never do that again unless unless there's an equitable issue. I was once sent to Superior Court by a judge, but uh, do you feel like you've, because of what you see uh, and how many cases you handle, that you've, you've developed that expertise over certain types of cases? I think so. I think part of it's a familiarity um, with trying the same type of case on a regular basis. Like, um, I was looking back, for example, at, I use um, car accidents because honestly, those are the cases that go to trial more than any others in, the, in this, and I'm talking the civil arena here. Um, I think every case that I had uh, in 2019 or maybe it was 2018 that went to a jury trial was, a, was an automobile collision case. Um, and so you get to know how to do those very well and, and just so everyone's clear, there's a lot of work that gets done by the lawyers and the judges before a case even makes it to a jury trial. Um, because, uh, and there's lots and lots of cases, the vast majority of the cases, I, I read a statistic once that over 90% of the cases settle or resolve in some way before they go to a jury. Um, so 
I feel pretty comfortable with the law and how to run a, you know, a jury trial or the pretrial of a, of an automobile collision. Um, just cause we've done so many of them as, as an example. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an idea of how many cases, uh, you preside over at any one time? Uh, y'all have those stats. I don't even know. It's, but... it's, it's rough. Um, I think as of right now, I think I've got somewhere around 2000 ish wow. cases. Um, and about seven or 800 of those are civil and then the rest are, are criminal. That's pretty, so, ama that's amazing to me. <laughs> it's a lot of cases. <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. You know, but some require a lot more time and energy than others do. Um, a lot of those cases may be, for example, a, a collection on a medical bill that someone didn't pay or a credit card bill. And, um, and some may be really complicated in-depth cases where I know the lawyers and the case number and all of that <laughs> quite well. Um, so it, you know, it runs the gamut. So what's, what's happening with, uh, you know, with the COVID, we, we haven't had a jury trial in Georgia, I guess, since about March, if I remember correctly. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have a practice that's, um, has a lot of automobile, a lot of torque claims, but, you know, I do some criminal defense and other stuff as well. And so, uh, I've settled some of those claims, but, you know, people always joke about folks settling on the courthouse steps. And I tell them that, you know, A, that's when everybody knows the most about what their case is. And two, it's the last exit, you know, before you, you know, you're going to let somebody else decide it instead of you. Um, and so, I mean, I've settled some cases, uh, but uh, not, I don't think at the pace I was settling them when they were on trial calendars. And, uh, you, you know, everybody knows we're going to either have to go try this case or we're going to have to resolve it, you know, right now. And so I'm wondering, you know, has, has your civil docket uh, really backed up at this point? Are you getting a lot more cases or did the COVID uh, situation slow the flow of the inflow of cases to where it's sort of held steady? Uh, it, I think it slowed some and I just talked to um, our chief deputy clerk in the civil division. He said last month was the heaviest month of civil filing that we've had in a long time. So even though it may have slowed for a while, I think that it's opening back up again. Uh, I know lawyers have been continuing to get cases ready for trial uh, and everything they could do. So yeah, I mean, as a judge, you know, one of the biggest shifts is managing 2000 cases. Um, Cause I think it's my job as a judge to make sure that cases are tried or placed on a trial calendar within a reasonable amount of time. So therefore I'm a big fan of putting scheduling orders in place so people have deadlines and, and know when they're gonna be on a calendar. I think it's good for lawyers to plan and know what it's gonna look like and when they're expected to have certain things done. <laughs> and that COVID has kind of thrown all that up in the air. I mean, you can still have some deadlines for, you know, trying to get discovery done and filing of dispositive motions. Cause those are the kinds of things that we can continue to move on until we get jury trials up and running again for, for state court or, or for civil cases in particular. Talking about hearings that you can conduct now, I assume you're doing them by Zoom. 
or some other platform. Uh, and I noticed that you have a um, YouTube channel. Are you broadcasting hearings by YouTube? I do. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? And, sure. And I, I kind of like to know about how the judges came up with that idea. It's, it's a great idea, but. I can't take credit for it. I don't know who came up with it. Uh, we do it here in Fulton County on the Zoom platform. Um, and I just want to give a big kudos to all of the IT professionals. Uh, <laughs> not only it, in Fulton County court system, but everywhere who um, have just been invaluable during this uh, in helping so many different industries, uh, including the courts, um, get up and running because we didn't have that technology, you know, beginning of March, at least not as readily available. You know, I don't. I, I didn't know I'd, about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I had ever used one really. Um, but it's uh, so I like using Zoom. Uh, the only thing that's weird is I don't do a very good job like looking in the camera because I'm used to looking at lawyers and people when I talk to them so that, you know, trying to make that eye contact when it's weird, you get your Brady Bunch screen up here and you're looking off at one corner and somebody else is looking elsewhere. But uh, that's that's my only downside with it. Um, but, you know, it's important for the public to be able to see what's happening in the courts. And it's, I think it's an essential part of how our justice system works is that it is open that people can come in and observe it. So we do have our have a um, YouTube channel and which broadcasts while I broadcast it live while we're doing the hearing so that people can um, can see it and know what's going on. And I know um, some people do it on Facebook Live and there's uh, different courts and whatever people have their preferences. But here in Fulton County, we all I think all the, all the judges have YouTube channels. All of the hearings that are going on in the jail are being live broadcast on YouTube channels as well. So that's really, that's really neat. So, uh, you know, it's interesting to me because, um, you know, again, in my practice, I'm, I'm on the side having the burden of proof in all my uh, civil cases, you know, virtually where I'm uh, representing somebody that's been injured or, you know, has a, has a medical malpractice claim or whatever. And then, uh, in the criminal stuff that I do, I'm on the side that's defending, uh, defending against that, you know, defending against the, the party with the burden of proof. And I've sort of noticed that, uh, when you talk about jury trials and particularly if you talk about having a virtual jury trial of some form or fashion where, uh, the, the, the jurors aren't there, whatever the party that does not have the burden of proof, the, de the defense lawyers and, and civil cases and the criminal defense lawyers are all like, Oh no, we, we could just never do that because you, you couldn't tell if the jury, uh, was paying attention or you couldn't tell, uh, what else they might be looking up on their computer or, or something like that. And, uh, so it's sort of, it, I've sort of identified that there's sort of a bias amongst those folks who have the burden of proof of saying, yeah, we need to, we need to kind of figure this thing out, you know, and move forward uh, where we can do those virtually if we need to. And the other side sort of, no, you know, I, I don't think we'll ever be able to do that. What's your view on? Well, I don't think I necessarily agree that it's only the side that doesn't have the burden of proof that, I mean, I think I've heard concerns from both sides of the V, whether they be in state or, I mean, whether it's a civil or a criminal case. Um, I am not quite sure how we would do a fully virtual jury trial. Um, I know that there's some states I think that have tried it. I'm not sure if it's been fully virtual or not, 
um, and I sort of read some blurbs about it. Um, it. There's a lot of challenges. You know, I've heard issues, as far as are the jurors paying attention, you know, it is a weird thing and I feel bad for jurors who come in. And as adults, when was the last time you had to sit down and you couldn't take a break, you couldn't pull out your phone, you couldn't do whatever you needed to do, just sit there and listen for hours at a time. And that is not something that we are used to doing anymore. So um, I think it's a, it's a real concern to make sure everybody's paying attention, um, especially if it's a virtual environment, uh, you know. I still am not sure how they would do that with jurors, to be quite honest, um, have jurors in a different location. Now, maybe if it's a, I'm gonna use the term safe room and that's not the right thing, but if it is some room by themselves in the courthouse and there's a, a camera in there and a TV, maybe, but if somebody's just at home, you know, watching this on their iPad, I'm not sure. I don't know how that would work, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, um, I, I don't think, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a proponent of it. I'll say that. Uh, I don't think it would be good. Um, the other thing besides, besides making sure jurors are paying attention. And, and by the way, it, it is sort of a prison sentence to sit as a juror live in person at trial and listen to a, you know, medical malpractice case for two weeks. I, um, I feel for them. But um, the other thing that, that, bothers me about attempting a virtual jury trial would be access to the internet, access to the right device, access to a quiet place for eight hours a day. Uh, the access, and I'm afraid, I'm afraid if we said, okay, everybody, every jury who has access to all these things, you can be on the jury and the people who don't, sorry, you're excused. I think that would skew our jury pool uh, and, and honestly, not, not in favor of my client. I think this is a fascinating, fascinating thing because Robin, you know, of course, has immediately uh, stuck the pen in my balloon uh, theory there, you know, that, that, that plaintiff's lawyers didn't, <laughs> didn't want the, uh, but, you know, maybe, maybe we need to have another podcast to get a lawyer and a civil defense lawyer, civil place. We have a debate over whether we could have a, a, a civil, you know, where we could have a virtual jury trial because I think about, you know, I'm all not the, sure you're going to find every, anyone arguing in front of it who's a, in favor of it, Lester, who's a, who's a trial lawyer. Interesting. Interesting. Because, I, I, you know, I, as I'm sitting here listening to this, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little bit of a devil's advocate as well, but I'm thinking like, because I know people who have tried bench trials over, uh, you know, tried bench trials virtually. And, uh, and, and I know, uh, given your distinguished uh, uh, career at the bar, Susan, you know, uh, trial lawyers always worry if the judge is listening or not, or the judge has gone back and Googled, you know, something about their client or about their case, you know, whatever. Yeah. And uh, they've got 100%, you know, when they're the finder of fact, when you said as a finder of fact, you've got the 100% control, you know, over the outcome of that. Um, and, and I also think that at some point, uh, for the reasons that I, I said before, we just kind of got to start moving forward with some jury trials because it'll, you know, it'll push some things toward, toward settlement. You know, I, I think that you bring up a couple of points. You know, one is I mentioned earlier, I have standing orders and I'm still been doing standing orders in all my cases. And I include in there the, the paragraph that if the parties are willing to do it, you know, that I'm willing to have a bench trial um, with the consent of the parties. You know, I think it's pretty easy if you are talking about something that is, you know, a breach of contract case or involves some more legal kind of issues versus, 
you know, the types of case I know that Robin handles when people are suffer, have suffered, you know, injuries, very often catastrophic injuries. Um, and it's not easy to put a particular dollar value on it as, as it is like if it's a breach of contract case and you're like, here are my invoices, you owe me $20,000, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, I, I think that one thing that we're all going to have to look at going forward is what are we going to do to get cases tried? As you all know, people need their day in court. Um, and how in the world are we going to, I mean, that's one of the things that, that keeps me worried and a lot of people on the bench and, and lawyers as well is how are we going to do this? Cause there's an enormous backlog of cases, you know, it's a lot of it, you know, I'm sending, I've always sent cases to mediation. Um, I'm continuing to do that. I know some people have had successful virtual mediations and I don't know if you all have tried those or not. Um, but I know that those are continuing, um, a lot of cases get resolved that way, even if it's not during the mediation, it might be thereafter because you may have been able to talk out some issues. And But what are trials going to look like? Are they going to be more bench trials? Are we going to go with six-person jury trials instead of 12-person jury trials? Because we're not going to come back into jury trials like it was before. I mean, the Chief Justice just issued a new order that are allowing jury trials to resume again in, in the state as long provided that safeguards are in place um, you know, at the courthouse to protect the safety of everyone involved. But it's not gonna be like it used to be. You know, We're not gonna call 300, 400 jurors down here and set them in the jury assembly room in the Fulton County Courthouse. Um, and let, we're gonna be, yeah, go ahead. Let, let me ask, I agree. And let me ask you about that um, because I know, for example, in DeKalb County State Court, Judge Mike Jacobs has said they had some entity come in and actually measure out the courtroom and figure out how, what's the maximum capability, capacity, six feet apart. And it was only, I mean, they're tiny courtrooms in DeKalb County, um, only about 15 people max with proper social distancing. So Judge Jacobs was saying, we're not going back to an in-person jury trial for a long time because we can't comply with the safety. And I'm wondering, have, has your courtroom had that kind of uh, investigation of it to see what the capacity is and how you could do one in your courtroom? Sure, um, we have. Uh, and, you know, it's a, actually we were, <laughs> we, one of the things I've been spending a lot of time during this COVID uh, is working with our other justice partners to try to look at the procedures and process that we, we've used, particularly in criminal cases. And, and changing that and how can we go forward um, and we just have the technology in place now to allow us to have some some people participating virtually and some people participating in the courtroom because um, it required pretty big technology upgrade for us to have multiple computers at every space and um, but so we are going to have that available um, here in the Fulton County Courthouse you know within the next few months um, to allow us to do more, I call them hybrid proceedings. But yeah, I think I can only fit 15, 16 people in the gallery where, um, you know, where people used to come in and watch the courtroom. So it could be that that's where we put the jurors. It could be we have the jurors in plexiglass boxes in the jury box. I, you know, I, I don't know um, exactly what that's going to look like. I know that there is a a team of folks here in Fulton County who are looking at um, how are we going to do jury trials? Where are we going to do them? 
we're going to, you know, start it slowly um, and figure out what that's going to be. But, you know, safety is a huge concern for everybody involved. People either if you get called down for jury duty or you're a party or a witness or a lawyer or the judge, <laughs> it's, it's a concern. Um, and so right now we are looking at ways to make it so that people can come um, come down or they don't have to be here or they can participate virtually. Um, and, you know, the ability to still see what's happening in the courtroom. Um, yeah, one thing, one thing that I, I have repeatedly said, I hope COVID kills, which is a, which is a, a, a relic of, of rural trial practice is the calendar call. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, it, truthfully, you know, in Fulton and DeKalb, uh, uh, especially, you know, they, they hadn't really done that in a long time, but every case I have in some place like Bartow or Whitfield or whatever, they, they want to have a calendar call where every lawyer, you know, that's got a case down there comes in and, uh, and, and it's, you know, it can be more easily done by emails and, you know, telephone calls and whatnot now, but a lot of the stuff that, uh, that you're talking about with the jury trials, I think people don't realize that, you know, if you got a 12 person jury and you got one person on each side of a case and you've got one lawyer on each side of a case, you're up to 16 folks right there. You've got a judge takes you to 17, a court reporter that takes you to 18, a clerk that takes you to 19. And, he, and if, even if you just have one bailiff, you know, in the whole thing, you know, you, it, it's 20 people or it's nothing, uh, you know, in that situation. And uh, that, that's a lot of folks in architecture that's uh, really been built for everybody to sit on top of one another. Uh, and, and that's pretty much true in every, you know, every courtroom in the state that I've been in. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a minimum of 20 people who would be in there for a 12 person jury trial. Um, you know, here in Fulton, we do have some larger courtrooms um, that are bigger than the one that I've got, uh, but we don't have that many of them. So, um, and some would be available only for civil trials uh, and couldn't handle criminal cases. Uh, you know, for we have to have holding cells, especially if someone's in custody. Uh, so there are those limitations as well. But I mean, Lester, you're you're absolutely right. We have to make sure that we've got ways to um, maintain social distancing in the courtroom and. You know, maybe it's the jury sits back and everybody turns their chairs around and you face, you know, where it used to be the audience watching. You know, one of the nice things that we just did is um, we added TV screens. You guys haven't been down here to see this yet, but we've got big TV screens that are going to be live streaming what's going on in the courtroom out into the hallway. So if people want to watch it, they don't necessarily have to come into the courtroom. They can stay out in the hallway where there's some more room um, That's to watch it. That's a good idea. So so, uh, switching off COVID uh, for, for just a minute, uh, you know, with Superior Court judges uh, who do adoptions and, and state court judges don't get that. If you ever ask a Superior Court judge, what's your favorite thing to do? They say, oh, I love doing adoptions, you know, and they bring the babies in and, and whatnot. But as a state court judge, what would you say is your favorite, your favorite thing to do, the thing you look forward to doing? Oh, goodness. Um, one of the cool things about being a judge is you get to marry people. I love weddings. Uh, that's a, that's a neat thing to get to do. Um, favorite thing, you know, I work, uh, with DUI court and I've been doing that for seven, eight years. I'm not even sure how long it's been now. Uh, and so that is a really, um, 
meaningful thing in my role as a judge that I really uh, enjoy doing. And a DUI court is an accountability court. Um, it's for people who have been convicted of two or more DUIs and it is a treatment court. So it gives um, those people um, who fall within, you know, who come into the court, it gives them counseling, both individual and group counseling requires abstinence from all drugs or alcohol. Uh, and they get to come see me. We've been doing it via Zoom since uh, they get to see me or Judge Wesley Taylor, who's uh, the other judge who does DUI court, you know, every other week when they start off. So you get to know people in the program, you get to celebrate their successes and, um, you know, and people slip up occasionally. And so you, as a judge, I have to deal with that and hold them accountable for their actions, but move forward. So that, that's, that's where being a, that's where being a teenage, a teenage mom <laughs> uh, re really comes in handy. I'll bet, you know, so. Uh, that is true. That is true. Um, um, that, that's an interesting, the DUI court that you preside over is really, um, I think, innovative, creative. Uh, it's a recognition that these folks have broken the law that there's a pro but there's a underlying problem making them break the law or causing them to break the law and so maybe they don't need the harsh treatment of jail or or something like that but some other way to deal with with what they're doing i, th I think it's a great idea yeah and they're nationwide now um ours has been around since 2007 judge susan forsling started it and was one of the first ones in the state they work uh, accountability courts work that we have them in Fulton County for um, DUI uh, drug court. There's a veterans court that um, helps folks who have served our country um, and many of whom may have developed an addiction of some kind afterwards uh, or as a result of that uh, and gives them, you know, additional counseling and resources and mentors. Um, we also have some in juvenile court and there's also a mental health court, both felony and misdemeanor. Uh, here in the state and um, they're they're not easy <laughs> some people would rather go to jail for 60 90 120 days than have to do all of the work that's required of them uh, as part of an accountability court program it I think it's a lot harder not that well, I want to spend I, time in jail but you know I've been involved in politics or practicing law for almost 40 years now. And I can tell you that the unbroken, uh, you know, there was particularly a period uh, here in Georgia uh, back in the back in the late 80s and, and through the 90s where uh, every year it seemed like the General Assembly's main uh, main theme was we want to uh, we, we want to toughen DUI laws. Uh, so there was a there was sort of this unending uh, uh, addition of, of, of punishments and lowering, uh, uh, lowering blood alcohol content, stuff like that. But as far as I know, there, there was never anything to actually treat the underlying problem like the DUI court uh, that you're talking about before Judge Forsling and, uh, and some other judges and other jurisdictions started, started running the DUI court. Is that correct? Pardon? I missed that last I said, part. Is that correct? Correct. I mean, I mean that that wasn't something that was going on elsewhere in Georgia. I mean, Fulton was sort of a, a pioneer in that regard, were they not? Yeah, we were the one of the earliest ones. I think actually the earliest one was up in Athens, Clark County. Uh, I think that was the first one in the state. But we were a pretty early adopter. You're absolutely right to DUI courts. 
I, I think also Judge Deal, uh, he's somewhere mm -hmm. in North, North Georgia, Hall County or somewhere up there, uh, Governor Deal's son, who's a judge, started, um, not DUI, but I think it was a mental health court. Uh, yeah, he runs a drug court, I know. Drug court. And actually, Governor Deal, I think, has, has spoke on uh, his support of those from going and watching his son's participants' graduations and how impactful that was. Has uh, having to do it over Zoom, doing the DUI court, has that had an impact or were they, are they still being held accountable in showing up and doing all the things that you require them to do? Yeah, uh, and, um, and you know, like everybody else, uh, I appreciate the flexibility of the participants because now they have to do all their counseling sessions via Zoom hearings and come talk to the judge via Zoom hearing. I guess it's easier because you don't have to travel someplace sometimes, but uh, you know, it's not the same as being a person, but I think everybody's just making the best of it that we can. Well, well, let's talk about, let's talk about juries sort of just in normal times. You know, we're, we're, we've, we, we've had a little break from that, but you were talking about that. Uh, and I know you, you, you probably have DUI jury trials a lot. You have a lot of car wrecks, uh, a lot of stuff. It sounds like revolves around automobiles and <laughs> driving them or wrecking them or, or, or whatever else. But uh, do juries surprise you with the verdicts they come back with? Have you experienced that? Rarely. Um, usually I think I'm pretty, you know, I like to sort of, as I'm listening to it and I'm listening to closing arguments, um, especially in civil cases, when it's just sort of, here's the, you know, folks are asking for money, um, it's really, that's, that's the relief they get in state court from a jury. Um, so I usually have my idea, my range of where I think the jury's going to come within. And, and normally I'm pretty good at, at pegging where that's going to be. I may not be right on, but I'm usually, you know, sort of within that range. Um, I think I've been surprised only once or twice, like that it's outside of where I thought it was going to, the range where I thought it might come in. You know, we talked about if we ever had a virtual jury trial being concerned, jurors not paying attention, but let's go back to our normal in-person non-COVID era of jury trial. Have you ever, um, have you ever had to, uh, on your own, kick off a juror for not paying attention or doing something, looking at their phone or something like that? I, I will usually call somebody on it if their phone or I'll get the it doesn't happen very often. You know, what you see more often is sometimes lawyers are a little long-winded and <laughs> instead of making their point, no. they're, making it, they're making it four times. I'm just like, because I will say this, although people may not be thrilled to come down to the courthouse um, and they may not be very excited if they're selected as a juror, I think almost every single person that I have had who has served as a juror has taken it really, really seriously, listened, and worked the best they could to come up with what they think is the right verdict. I firmly believe that in that 99.99% of the time. But sometimes, so, what were you going to say? I was, I was going to say, so one of the, one of the things that uh, as you're talking about long-winded lawyers, which I, I certainly uh, cer certainly have experienced that and have been guilty of it myself, I'm sure on numerous occasions, uh, a lot of the judge's role in the, 
in the at the end of the case is, and I'm saying this really for our listeners who aren't lawyers, is to give the charge, you know, to tell the jury what the what the charge is, and uh, and uh, the the judge doesn't really just get to make that up. There's you know there's some guidelines. Uh, you you get to decide which charges to give and which not to, but there's some pretty standard language uh, about that, and so. I, how do you, what's your approach to the jury charge? And do you feel like jurors, uh, do you feel like it really makes a difference? We, we had a judge here uh, in Bartow County years ago, uh, has passed away now, but he said, I, I, I think sometimes if I just told the jury, go do the right thing, they'd come back with the same verdict that they come back with after I give them this charge. And so I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious to know what your, your take has been on that. Well, let me, I will answer that because I actually like jury charge issues, but um, which makes me weird, I think. <laughs> I think that's just my inner geek coming out there. But back to Robin's point. So I have people fall asleep sometimes after lunch. It's long-winded. So if you see me start to throw books on my table or slamming drawers around, that I am trying to get a juror to wake up without necessarily embarrassing them too much. So um, I'll get my deputy up there to, you know, or else I'll give everybody a stretch break. We can all stand up and stretch to make sure we're all doing okay. Um, sometimes, but, sometimes I like it when my jurors sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it depends on what part of the case it is. It does. Yeah, that's, that's my job to make sure they're not sleeping. <laughs> um, but to the issue of jury charges, okay, first of all, I think jury charges are really hard to understand. Secondly, they can Me be. Too. They can be. If anybody out there has a really good proximate cause charge that they, I'm talking to the lawyers here, that they want to give me that makes um, sense. Uh, you know, because one I think we have is hard for, I think for me with legal training to sort of get my head around sometimes um, if I really sit down and look at it. But there's a project going on right now for trying to, write some, rewrite some of the jury charges in more readily understandable uh, conversational language without changing, you know, the underlying meaning. Um, but I, um, I give juror, jurors a copy of the charge to have with them in the jury room. Because you've got folks who don't have legal training, and if we are expecting them, especially in a, in a two-week-long complicated medical malpractice trial with multiple experts, and each of one is highly qualified and they're taking opposite positions about whether something was done correctly or incorrectly. Um, and we're asking folks who are not trained in, for example, medicine or law to come in and make these decisions. Um, you know, I think it's important for them to be able to go back and look at what the law is. So I always give my jurors the charge to have with them in the jury room. I also charge them on what the law is before closing arguments because I think it's helpful for the jurors to hear. This is the law that you have to apply before the lawyers come in and argue, you know, my client should win for these reasons. That's interesting because I think in a lot of, I think in a lot of states, they do it that way. I've never, you know, I've tried about a hundred jury trials. I've never, never seen it done that way in Georgia. And uh, I always end up, arguing, you know, telling them what the charge is going to be instead of them mm -hmm. already heard, having heard it, which uh, seems to be, uh, the, the way we do it seems to put the cart before the horse a little bit. What about, would you ever charge the jury before the first witness? So as they hear the testimony, 
they have the law in their mind. That's a good idea. Um, you know, they get some of it before that about credibility. Little, yeah, they little get a bit. little bit. I have started giving more substantive charge um, in the beginning. Uh, and I would consider it, I, I think I did it in a medical malpractice case. I don't think you necessarily need it for a car accident. Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, but I think for some of the cases that are maybe a little bit more complicated uh, as far as legal mm -hmm. issues, um, I think it's a good idea. It doesn't hurt to have that in your mind about, you know, I, I know that me as a listener, I want to know, you know, what are the important things that I'm supposed to be listening for versus what's a, you know, a red herring. So yeah. I think it's a good idea. Well, we may do that. At, I may do that if I ever get back in the courtroom trying, <laughs> trying a case. I was going to ever get you, to try a jury trial again. Yeah, I was going to tell you the last trial that I tried was last, last year. Because uh, I haven't, I didn't try one. I don't think I tried one before COVID this year. Um, and my jury was out. For, you're talking about that, that jurors take their oath uh, very seriously and work very hard to reach the right, um, the right result. And I agree. My my jury was out and was in decab. They were out for a week. And I'm praying not for a hung jury because that's probably one of the worst things that can happen to a plaintiff. Uh, and a plaintiff's attorney is a hung jury. So I'm praying not for a hung jury, but they came back with a verdict after a week. They, I, I felt like that was the hardest working jury I've ever had. Um, and I've tried not as maybe as many as Lester, but pretty close, so almost a hundred. Um, so I, I do believe they take that oath very, very seriously, which is, I mean, the way it should be. And I think it's a hallmark of our, our civil justice system that they do. Mm -hmm. I agree so, with that. Mm -hmm. so with uh, you, you talked about trying a lot of car wreck uh, cases, and uh, you know one of the games that sort of gets played in car wreck cases, particularly gets played in all tort cases, particularly in car wreck cases, is the jury's never told that uh, uh, there, there's car insurance, even though if they stop to think about it, mm -hmm. you know they probably know that. Uh, do, do, do you uh, do you think most jurors see through that, or do you think it? it do you think their verdicts? would be changed if, if the law were just, yeah, you tell them it's State Farm or Allstate or, or, or whoever that's, that's going to pay the verdict? Um, I actually tell my jurors that they should not consider anything that isn't part of the evidence. And I call this my sort of my don't consider the issue of insurance charge. And uh, it's, a, it's a generic charge. It doesn't necessarily say you shouldn't consider insurance, but it's something to the effect of you have heard all the evidence in the case and you should not um, concern yourselves whether any third party is or is not paying all or any part of, you know, the damages or judgment. Cause then it covers, cause not only is it car insurance, but you also get the question about is somebody or somebody's injuries covered by health insurance and that doesn't come in either or disability insurance. And that doesn't come in either. Um, so I, I actually think I got this charge from judge Wesley Taylor. Um, and uh, I have started giving, I've been giving that charge for a few years now. Um, does, and, it, does it eliminate their question? You know, because the first question they always have is, is there insurance? I got that question almost every single trial, uh, almost every single case. Mm -hmm. um, and I have rarely, if ever, have I gotten it once I started giving that charge. That's interesting. So, 
I'll be happy to share it with you guys. Uh, you yeah, I would like to have it. it. It fixes a problem because you know the first question out of the box is, and you can't blame what's them. their insurance? Yeah, that's what so, they're looking for. So one other sort of out of the blue question here, because I've had this happen some before, you know, uh, jurors sometimes have questions. And, uh, and, and I remember the first case I was trying where uh, I, I was defending a, a felony case down in Clayton County and a juror says, can, I, can, I, can we ask a question? And the judge said, only if the lawyers agree. Well, by golly, I popped up first and said, that, that's fine with me, judge. And the poor <laughs> prosecutor, you know, what, what was he gonna say? So the juror got to ask his question. And, uh, you know, now we even have some judges that sort of invite questions, you know, from the jurors. And uh, just like you talk about the, the juror needs to kind of know what the law is, they're making the decision. And I think in a lot of states, they, they do have some, you know, right to, right to ask questions. What's your, what's your view on that? Um, I think if you've got procedures in place to do it, I think it's, a, it's fine. Um, it, but here's the issue. Lawyers may bring up or not bring up certain things for a strategic reason. And I get that, but at the same time, if I'm a juror and I've got a major question about it, um, but sometimes it's just a clarification question. Like, I didn't understand what you said. Can you explain this answer? Uh, so the way, and I know some judges here in Fulton County, both state and superior court have done this. Um, and the way that I understand it that works, and I uh, sat in on one of the trials once, is that uh, when a witness is done testifying, if the jurors have questions, they can write them down on a sheet of paper then they take a break. The judge reviews those questions with the lawyers, um, may end up rephrasing the question, and then the judge puts the question to the witness um, and may, you know, may rephrase it somewhat. Uh, so then that question is then asked of that witness. Um, and not every question gets asked. I, and I think that that's probably a pretty good idea. I guess I would lean toward the side of let them ask questions in my cases, civil cases, because I want to fill up any hole. You know, if I've left a hole in my evidence that the juror is worried about, I'd like to know what they're thinking in advance. That would be nice. But I do see it having constitutional implications in a felony case. Um, I don't think that they've done it in criminal trace cases. Well, they, I don't know. They, I don't know that did. for sure. I know they did it in one. Oh, <laughs> did they? Okay. Tex yeah. McIver is coming up. We'll oh, see. We'll see yeah. if that's, that's going right. to. That's yeah. on appeal, and it was that's Judge McBurney, right. and there were a lot of questions. I yeah. forgot about that. You it, were it made the trial right. really long too, uh, but I think that's going to be one of their appellate issues. I think because I, I'm pretty sure Bruce Harvey objected to any question from the jury. Yeah. So I, we'll have it. We'll have a case on it. I think. Yeah, I think I think the other thing, I think the one thing that I wor would worry about that a little bit, and in, in the case that I had, we had a, we had a uh, where the juror wants to ask, and the judge just lets him ask, you know, ask the question, <laughs> and and he did, and and the one jury charge that I think jurors probably pay less attention to than anything else is the one about. Uh, uh, you know, now if I, as the judge, have done anything that would imply that I was for one side or the other, you need to ignore that because I have no interest in this case. And I, I just think jurors don't believe that. They, they think a judge, you know, we pick judges because they're smart, they're learned, and they think they formed an opinion one way or another. And they, uh, and, and you know, I've, I've heard them, I've heard jurors before say, oh, well, when the, when the judge jumped on that other lawyer, when the judge said this to you, you know, and so I, I think, 
uh, you know, if I, if I were, if I were going to do that, I'd rather the clerk read the question or something where it's not, you know, uh, cloaked in uh, judicial authority that might be interpreted one way or another, or might be subject to interpretation yeah. either way, you know, depending on, on who the jury hmm. is. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. That is, that is one thing that, you know, I as a judge have to be really careful about is I know the jurors are, you know, watching my facial expressions and, you know, how I'm responding to the lawyers and, you know, that I've got to be very aware of how I, um, not only the words I'm saying, but <laughs> things yeah, I'm not I, saying. And I think, I think, I think sometimes too that, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the juror expectation about that's real. You know, we, 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 last night the Braves had a 22-year-old pitcher go up against a future Hall of Famer, and I think any judge, I mean, any umpire that follows baseball would say, wow, this kid really did well. Does that mean he gives him more balls and strikes? No, you know, you're just at a different function, you know, about that, you know, one way or another. And uh, But but I think, uh, you know, it's it's got to be a problem for a judge. Thankfully, I've I've not. Thankfully, both for me and any litigants that might would have had to appear before me, I've never been a judge, so I haven't had to worry about it. Well, also, judges are people too. You, yeah, you, you can't absolutely check all of your emotions at your chamber's door when you go into the the bench, which I know is hard. You're trying to be like that, but I, I'm sure there are some people that just get under anybody's skin no matter how judicial you are. There are times when I'm like, it's time for me to take a break. And I, <laughs> exactly. I can imagine. I yeah. I need, yeah. I need to get off the bench before I do something. I, I, I know too, uh, Judge. We have I, a I will say that there was a, that the judge who um, I took his seat uh, when he moved to Superior Court, he left me a note, says, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> and that note from 12 years ago on the yellow sticky is still sitting right there I, like, I, I, can, I look I, at it i can go i can go you one up on that i was a judge for a, a law school mock trial competition over at the russell building yeah you know, one time and uh, they wanted me to be the judge you know in the final thing and uh i i go up on the judge's bench uh which to me too even having been in the courtroom as much as i have it was really scary i gotta tell you you know like i I'm like, I don't know what, I don't know what I'm doing up here, but there was a marble plaque. I mean, like a marble and, you know, engraved like a tombstone or something sitting there. And it said, uh, K Y D M S. And I went, what does that mean? And then all of a sudden it hit me, keep your damn mouth shut. And, uh, I followed that advice, even with the law students. That's good. I think I need to upgrade my yellow sticky to that. <laughs> Although it served me well for 12 years. So. Well, it was, it, it was, I, 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 I will tell on who it was. I was in Judge Tom Thrash's courtroom. So <laughs> he, he might can enlighten you on that. Well, Judge Edline, it's been wonderful having you. Um, probably need to let you get back to work, uh, but we can't thank you enough. And at the end of our show, every time we ask our guests, what is their definition or their notion? or understanding of justice. And we, we want to ask you that and have you share your ideas about that. How do you define justice? Um, that is not an easy question to answer because it's kind of like just one of those things. It's, it's ultimately you want to treat people the way that you would want to be treated if you or, some, or if your loved one was down um, in front of a judge 
for a jury. You know, there's a there's a piece of paper that I've had since I graduated from law school. And this is when I went to law school, this was um, engraved in one of the buildings. And it said that those alone may be servants of the law who labor with learning, courage, and devotion to preserve liberty, liberty and promote justice. And um, that has just sort of stayed with me uh, ever since. And in promoting justice is you want people to leave the courthouse, whether they won or lost, to know that they were treated fairly and that they were heard. Um, and sometimes that's all I can do is let people be heard because the law may be absolutely against them. Um, but if people think that they, you know, that they understand what happened, and I think understanding is a big part of it because the law can be confusing to a lot of people, especially those who may not have um, who may not be educated in you know, all aspects of the law. And that's hard. And so I think part of what justice is, is um, explaining to people what has happened and, and why. And I think oftentimes if people know that they had a chance to come in, say what they needed to say and sort of understand um, what happened to them, whether it's a civil case or a criminal case, that I, I think that's a really important part of, for me, especially as a judge, to do that. And, you know, obviously, it goes without saying that everyone, no matter your gender, age, sexual orientation, race, you know, national origin, you know, none of that should play any part of it. Well, you 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 have done. Uh, thank you for being with us today. And uh, I, I will have to say, uh, as you read that, I truly believe you embody that and uh, the the dealings and the cases I've had in front of you. So not only thank you for appearing today, but, but thank you for, uh, for what you do for the citizens of the state of Georgia. That's right. Thank you, Judge Edline. And, and uh, just we appreciate you and appreciate your work on the bench. And, um, you know, you make us proud being on the bench. Well, thank you. That means a lot. And this is a lot of fun. I feel like I sit here and talk to you guys for another couple of hours. So we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, ha we'll have you back on for part two. Really, honestly, thank you all so much. This has been a great talking to you, and I really appreciate the opportunity to do that. And it truly, as I said earlier, it is an honor to be in this position, and I'm lucky to do what I do. So every week, or every podcast episode that we do, uh, we always try to have a news article from the last uh, week or two that uh, we want to share with our, our listeners that highlights the uh, things that are going on, current events. It's sort of like current events when you were in middle school uh, that, that we talk about. So I've got my current event. I'm going to get my extra credit today for my current event. I, I can't wait. <laughs> so uh, this comes from this last week, Thursday of this last week, the Iowa Supreme Court on Wednesday uh, ruled that 74,000 absentee ballot requests submitted by voters in three Iowa counties will remain invalid because of technical problems with the paperwork the Iowa Supreme Court ruled on Wednesday. I bring this article up not because I agree or disagree with this ruling, I haven't read the ruling one way or another, but because this is an example of one of a spate of rulings in both state and federal courts that are taking place uh, throughout the United States right now in the run-up to uh, the 2020 general election. And, you know, our electoral system 
uh, is a sometimes called an adversarial system, but it's certainly a competitive system, just like uh, when people go into court one side uh, with, with their case, the other side defending against it. And I think this case, though, emphasizes, because you've got 74,000 people out there who've requested absentee ballots uh, that, that will have to either go vote in person or will have to re-request it because of a technical problem there. What an important role that our courts, and particularly our state courts, because you hear a lot about litigation in federal court uh, over voting rights and whatnot, but each state, each of our 50 states have their own rules and regulations about voting. Those have to be interpreted. And uh, Robin, as you know, this is just one of probably five or 10 rulings that I could have, could have read uh, or could have made reference to today. But I think it's very important that we have a judiciary and have judges who are, are, are both uh, nonpartisan, not aligned with one side or another to go in there and look at the law, look at what happened and make a decision about that. Because when you talk about voting, it's one of the most precious rights that we as individuals uh, can have. I urge folks to, to, to go out and exercise that right to vote. Uh, we're already in the early voting, uh, early voting uh, era here uh, in Georgia before the 2020 general election. But I think it's great that we have courts to make these decisions. Uh, and I, I hope that all those courts take them, take them seriously and do not uh, have judges or justices on there who uh, say, well, I'd, I'd, I'd really like it to be this way or that way. You know, we, we need umpires and judges that call balls and strikes. Absolutely. And uh, I know there are, are numerous lawsuits pending right now over various forms of, of voters, basically voter suppression. Um, I just was listening to a podcast that I like, Stay Tuned with Preet, Preet Barar, and he had a uh, a guest on talking about who represents a lot of uh, entities in these lawsuits talking about voter suppression and you make a good point that voter suppression can happen uh, and if there weren't a court to stop it what would we do I mean we would be stuck without any sort of justice or uh, ability to vote ability to express our opinion on something if there weren't a court where we could go and file a lawsuit people sometimes are quick to denigrate courts and, and filing lawsuits, but they need to realize, those who, who would do that need to realize it's the only thing protecting your rights. Thank goodness we have a, a court to be able to do that. You know, I, t I tell people all the time, they talk about a lawsuit, and uh, a lawsuit is just to the judicial system what a bill is in the legislative system. It's the vehicle that you bring something forward to the body to get a decision on one way or another. And uh, I, I think we're seeing the vital role that some of those suits uh, are playing here uh, as it pertains to our elections. My uh, law-related news uh, is about uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed last month, as we all know. Uh, she was one of my personal heroes. And the news is that uh, Brooklyn the, uh, in New York is uh, creating a statue in her honor. They'd already had this in the works, actually, um, but they're, they have a, a statue that's almost ready to be placed, and it's going to be placed outside of a, a city building in Brooklyn. And it has a, 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 a very uh, 
likeness of her in her robe with a, one of her descent collars on. It's going to be in bronze. And she's up on two, um, two steps. And the artist who created this statue said, with the two steps on its large base representing the Supreme Court and the climb she made to get there, the work is designed to provide the public with an opportunity to stand at her side and gain inspiration from her journey fighting for equal rights. That's what the artist said about it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I can't wait to see. It's going to be dedicated uh, in March 2021 during Women's History Month. Um, so I'm excited about that. And there are not many statues that honor women anywhere in America. It's mainly men. So I'm glad to see a statue of a woman. Um, and I want to just share a statement from Justice Ginsburg that she made in an interview with um, uh, a publication in New York and, and about her, her time on the bench. And before that, she was a lawyer, uh, had appeared in front of the United States court herself as, a, as an advocate uh, working with ACLU. But she said, and I'm quoting this from Justice Ginsburg, I see my advocacy as part of an effort to make the equality principle everything the founders would have wanted it to be if they weren't held back by the society in which they lived and particularly the shame of slavery. I don't think my efforts would have succeeded had it not been for the women's movement that was reviving in the United States and more or less all over the world at the time. So the statue, she actually got to see... Um, a representation of the statue before she died and she approved it and her desire was to be shown uh, with a sense of dignity and when you see the statue uh, you I think you'll agree it certainly shows the dignity of Justice Ginsburg and I'm very happy that they are doing this in Brooklyn that's great what a great tribute to her mm -hmm, definitely all right well uh, I guess that completes our uh our podcast for today and until next time we'll see you in court thank you for listening to see you in court brought to you by the georgia civil justice foundation and the georgia institute of technology please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review you may find related documents to this week's episode on our website cuincourt.podbean.com please send any questions suggestions or ideas to see you in court podcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser-Clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.